VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey everyone, welcome back to Re- Welcome, well no, it can't be Welcome to Remap Sports and Sports Adjacent Podcast It sets out to disprove the notion that people with lives dedicated to pixels jumping across the screen Can't also be unhealthily interested in what nerds condescendingly refer to as sports ball Every Super Bowl Rob, I start off every episode with a new question This time from Ryan What are your thoughts on Angie Postigal... Pasigalu's appointment to Tottenham Hotspur. Personally, I think his lack of experience in the Premier League is not an issue, and he's shown himself to not only be an astute coach, but a great eye for talent with a keen understanding of possession-based football, but also someone who can improve existing players, which is the kind of thing Spurs really need. What do you think of his potential implementation of the inverted fullback system, a consistent application of style from Australia to Scotland? Will we see a primarily pragmatic positionless Pedro Poro? Can you hit me with that name, Rob? Uh, Pedro Paro, uh, Pastacoglu. Great, better than what I was doing. Possession play style. I know I have a lot to say about this, so happy to have you answer the question in parts. Rob, take this question uh, however you'd like to, whatever direction uh, kind of strikes you. Well, obviously, uh, let's see, yeah, uh, Ange Pastacoglu uh, has a illustrious career. He managed Brisbane, Brisbane Roar and Melbourne Victory in the A-League, winning the Premiership in 2011 and the Championship in 2011-2012 for the former uh, he was the senior national team manager from 2013-2017. And as you know, he won the AFC Asian Cup in 2015 and also <laughs> went to the 2014 FIFA World Cup. He went to the J1 League uh, with Yokohama F. M- uh, Marinos in 2019 and then won five trophies, including five? two titles, in two seasons with Celtic. Uh, you know, after joining South Melbourne, uh, how is it? well, we don't need to talk about that part, obviously. I don't know why I was thinking about that. <laughs> Uh, following his retirement, though, as you know, Pasakoglu took up the role of an assistant coach at South Melbourne, uh, and he gained the head coaching position in 1996 following the firing of uh, Frank Frank Arak. Oh, I, uh, so I think this is a great part. hire, and I think this is gonna this is gonna sort out a lot of issues uh, for for Hotspur. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Rob, um, and thank you to Ryan for for writing in that question. Yes, we're oh, hang on, oh, Patrick, I think I've got it. Oh, remap replay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. Please write in. Write into the mailbag at remapradio.com and let us know what you think about it. So that sounds like a game thing, but obviously like it's in the more mm-hmm, like the replay mm-hmm, booth. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, we're just we're tossing out ideas, you know? Um but we're yeah, we're back. It's, it was very strange um at uh waypoint to record a bunch of <laughs> cliffhanger episodes that we knew in our heart of hearts. We're kind of bullshit that <laughs> we knew that we were going to come back and do a bunch of these, um, or at least that was the intention. Um, and so it is a delight to uh, to stick to sports, frankly, uh, Rob, uh, and to, to be back here doing another sports podcast, uh, this time after the NBA Finals have wrapped up, after we have launched Remap, um, after we have an LLC, after we've shifted some of the first money into bank accounts. This is real. Rob, sports are real. This business is real. What isn't real? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a great question. Um, 
I, I think, you know, what was what's what's real to me is my love for the Bears. That that is not that's not waning. Uh, that is the most real thing in sports. And I guess what and I tell you what is not real. Whatever the A's are doing right now, Did I you don't see, buy it. Ha, okay, have you seen? So the A's, we 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 talked to them. I think on the on, on the the last one on, at Waypoint about the. It's a team that has an owner um, that is antagonistic at at best towards the team, desperately trying to to follow. Uh, the Raiders in a move to Vegas. Uh, although the the Vegas st- like state legislature just recently turned down uh, a bunch of like citizen tax dollars that would go towards a relocation effort to help out um, the A's. So it is possible that the A's are now hated in Oakland and may not be able to move uh, soon uh, to 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 Las Vegas. Um, and I believe. The what I saw last night, I, I think I have this stat correctly. I, I can look it up a little later to verify it. Is that they are the first team in an extremely long time, like a long, long time, to have a seven-win streak while being below. Well, we usually say five hundred, but below two hundred, I believe, is the stat. And they won last night. Um, it was a two-one game, uh, you know. So like not, not exactly high scoring uh, all the way to the end, and the game is over. The team. The, the fans celebrate the 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 win and then go got everyone quiet and started chanting sell the team this i'm going to i'm going to look this up i'm going to have kato insert some of this audio so that you can get a sense of how i cannot think i'm i'm trying to think through recent memory uh, a fan base being at such odds with ownership. We've talked about this in regards to the Bears, other football teams. Like, What do you do when you are so invested in a team that you've gone beyond being sickened with the roster construction by the coaches and management that you actually know who the owners are and can have malice <laughs> against them? But this is on a level that I have not seen in a while. Yeah, it's so, I mean, I feel like some of this is also Oakland is the market that's getting screwed in every league, right? Like this is just what this is just been the trend of things. Uh, they're they're the they're one of the markets that leagues are looking to move out of. They lost the they lost the Raiders again. The Warriors moved right. Like did, yes. did it, so did you did it used to be the case? I, I've been to the Raiders stadium, and I know part of what's amazing about it is that you kind of come out and there are multiple stadiums that are right next to each other, like the Raiders and the A's. Like play relatively close to one another. Am I remembering this geographically correctly? Oh, I, yeah, it's been too long since I've been out there. Um, um I want to say that's right, but either way, like like the Warriors have moved, like the A's are trying to move, the Raiders have moved, and so you have a sports fan base. Now, granted, like Oakland's history with sports moving in and out is is well known. The Raiders, especially, are a team that has kind of jumped around a bunch. But if you are, and I like when I think of at least in my life, the folks that I know that identify with Oakland sports, it's the A's more than anything else, right? Yes. Like, I feel like the Raiders are more of a traveling fan base because of the history of the team. Um, I don't know much of the history of the Warriors and how much that, how much, like, personal investment goes pre, like, the dynasty that we've experienced the last, like, 10 plus years. But it, it anyway, it's just anecdotally. But, like, I know when I have friends and they're wearing sports gear that's Oakland related, it is always like an A's cap. Like that, that is the thing I associate with the friends in my life. Yeah, it's, uh, 
And also, I think, you know, part of the part of the key ingredient, too, is they're slightly long suffering team, which <laughs> yeah. I, in a weird way, I think is good for a baseball fandom that it that it like sort of bakes in a bit like a bit like we are with the Bears, mm-hmm. you know, like once your love is divorced from results, you you're there, you know, come what do you have time. left other than just showing up and being sad? Yeah, but I I also think this is like one of the clearest examples of yeah, like Major League Baseball is tearing up a really devoted franchise uh fan base to go chase a new market and trying to sort of astro astroturf a a fandom in there. And I think the weird thing about Vegas too is it's not to say there aren't, there aren't sports fans out in Vegas. Like uh the Golden Knights, for instance, appear to have really like captured the interest of Las Vegas. Talk to me when the Golden Knights aren't good anymore following like, you know, getting a accelerated start via the expansion draft. But it does seem like they're, they're, they're you know, Vegas is a huge city. There is there are genuine like sports fans there. But at the same time, what you are doing here is you are firing a torpedo into a really devoted franchise and the way you are doing that, the way this has been handled is to try to justify what we can't, obviously there's no market for baseball in Oakland. You know, Oakland won't support a major league franchise. And the way that case is being made is the ownership has like publicly tried to burn the team down and has been like trying to make it a miserable fucking product so that they can say, ah, the town turns back on us. And that's why this protest becomes so effective, right? It's like, no, we just hate you. Like, we see what you're doing. Well, and there doesn't uh, seem to be mechanisms in place with an MLB to grapple with an owner that has no interest in fielding a competitive product, right? Like, there is um, – it doesn't necessarily drag down the coffers of everybody else if the A's suck. And – for all the problems in you know organizations like the NFL like that that is a league that is built around to a to a degree that is probably ridiculous like cr- creating like a level playing field or, or to some degree between teams regardless of owner uh regardless of uh geographic location um and that is just not the case in MLB and MLB seems like we I think we've discussed this before I think I, was, I might have talked about this with Jason Kebler it was like Actually, the, the MLB might be a league in which, they're the, broadly speaking, the owners are far more interested in just fielding the TV rights and associated media rights and, and putting out awful teams because there's no reason for them to do it unless they genuinely love baseball. And like that's as the, as these, as these, as it gets more and more expensive to own these teams, you're more, I guess, more and more likely to being attracting owners that are interested as an asset as opposed to, any sort of emotional uh, attachment to the sport itself. Yeah. And I, I do think like there's complicated politics in baseball around this as well. Like, can you imagine how infuriating you, how infuriated you would be if you are running a massive payroll, you're, you built a competitive team, you've got stars that people come out to see. And when your stars go through these shitty teams arenas, <laughs> like people come out to see them and like that team keeps the gate. And they get their share of the TV rights, uh-huh, even though uh-huh. they are basically like sitting there squatting on in the MLB. And you're out there trying to like maintain the level of competition that makes the sport worth watching. So I do I do think there's you know, it's funny that they don't have a mechanism 
to pressure owners like this, but it can get pushed to to push to an absurd degree. Uh, I, like I, I think you know, it, it seems to me like the, the, the it seems very unlikely that there's going to be stopping the A's relocating. It just sucks to see it all unfold this way. It does, but uh, there's also kind of a joy in the protest. Like it, it may be for nothing. It may not change the trajectory, but you know they're watching, right? Like yeah. you know, it is. It may not be practically effective, but it is emotionally humiliating. Effective. Rich people is good. Like uh, who? Who's the owner of uh, the Knicks? Uh, is it? Get on. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the guy with all the spy cameras at the stadium. Dolan. Um, sorry, James Dolan. Dolan sorry, yeah, Dolan's the Giants. Yeah. Uh, he's Dolan. got his own band, right? The band. Like, the band. Yeah, 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 yeah. The fact that he started banning people from the arena for chanting sell the team, right? And like the fact it so clearly got under his skin mm-hmm. that people hated him yes. and held him in absolute contempt. And he couldn't help but reveal the degree to which that wounded him. And that just made it so much more worth it, right? Like, ab- like, absolutely, it is worth a lifetime ban from Madison Square Garden <laughs> to make that man feel small. Because, I mean, sports is supposed to be one of the fastest ways that you can spend money to get pure adoration, right? And I have to imagine that is part of the appeal for a lot of these billionaires that purchase these companies, even as their evaluations go up and up and up, is that even, let's say you, you know, you don't have the emotional investment, but they're egomaniacs. It's like, I can spend several million dollars to have an entire arena of people who otherwise do not know me cheer for me as we raise the trophy. Like we saw, we saw this with the finals in which one of the first people to hold up the, what do they call? I don't know what they call the finals trophy, the uh, uh, whatever, but you know, like the, the, the golden the, you know, ball, the golden ball, like before they get to uh, Nikola uh, Jokic is the owner and the, the O'Brien the, Trophy. The, the O'Brien Trophy. And what was wild about the, I think it's Cronky, right, that owns the um, yeah. the Nuggets. Because um, someone had pointed out, we don't have this question in our in our doc, in our uh, uh, outline for today, but um, their track record of being associated with winning teams is like pretty remarkable in the last like ten years. Um, he goes up there and just bumbles his way through his speech doesn't speak into the microphone is like speaking into the ear of like the ESPN reporter that is up there doing the like the festivities it's worth looking it up and watching how strange and awkward it was because you have the ESPN reporter desperately trying to get the microphone into his face so that the stadium can hear but it's all just to say it's those moments do you see it? I'm sorry, I'm watching this. He waves off his handler and leans in her ear so he she can hear him. Yes. Which is such an endearingly human thing where he's mm-hmm. like, I'm talking to a person. Right. But he's this is an interview for the stadium, and like they won the game at the uh, you know, the 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 the, the Nuggets home. Like there, there's an entire stadium of like drunk adoring fans, and maybe they don't care about Cronky that much, but like all you gotta say is Nuggets Nation, and like ten thousand people are gonna go wild. And he is just like talking as though they're at a bar and they're waiting for a drink to show up from the bartender. And maybe on some level it's a little, yeah, you're right, endearing and humanistic, but it is it's a room full of people cheering yeah. for a billionaire. And it's it is just the fastest route that a rich person can go to get sheer adoration because at the end of the day, sports fans are irrational. Like that's part of why we do this podcast is this tension between like our politics, our like thoughts on culture, and just being irrational about these teams that we are are fans of. But I think it is also one of the fastest way a billionaire can show 
you're not better than me. You're nothing. (laughs) Like, if if you started from where I did, like, you wouldn't have a fucking pot to piss in right now. You're you're clear. You are clearly a dumbass. And this is like because, yes, you have some owners who come in and they're like, I'm going to spend the money and I'm going to build an organization to compete. And then it is also a very easy place to show that you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, that you are basically your your big genius idea is to do a smash and grab on the finances of your team and try to see what you can what's the most you can get for absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, I think it's like being a, being a major uh, professional team owner. Your decisions are observed in a way that most CEOs and such their business, their their decisions are not observed in this way. The closest analogy to it in some ways is like Musk, Musk's whole public persona because he made the type of CEO he is into a spectator sport. Mm-hmm. And for a while, he really loved that. This is a lot of fun. Look how everyone's telling me what a genius I am. Every time I say I'm going to do something, people are like, that sounds awesome. And then the flip side of that is the longer people get to see you operate and hear what you sound like and observe your decisions, they, they can evaluate them way better to the, the and this is what you know i think most of your typical plutocrats are doing they exist somewhere up in the stratosphere of business they're on corporate boards that you don't know what they're doing you don't know what they're up to they just let people manage their affairs and they make money but the minute you come out from cover you break cover and you say i'm gonna own a sports team suddenly Everybody can parse what you are doing. They can evaluate <laughs> your hiring decisions, how you're spending your money. And it turns out that a lot of folks get that opportunity and they don't reveal that they are what you would call a business genius. <laughs> I think I think I think that is right. So, um, you know, pour one out for A's fans, but also I'm the bait. Baseball seasons are long, Rob. We are not even at the draft deadline yet. I believe we are roughly 100 days from that, maybe less than that, um, uh, which is to say this can continue to escalate. And I oh, look yeah. forward because nothing's changing this season, right? And even if they build a stadium, presumably they're still going to be in Oakland for some amount of years unless they're going to like temporarily re- relocate next year and figure out. I don't know the specifics of that, but we have this year. We have this run. And I, I just hope that A's fans just really lean into this for my own personal delight. Yeah, the, me, me too. And we still have plenty of time for it to turn into the the stage where the owner can't even show up in Oakland at a Hell certain yes. point. That's always a fun point, too, where this is a place where a certain class of rich people can discover what it is to be exiled <laughs> from a place that presumably at one point you wanted to live. <laughs> Uh, so elsewhere, the, you know, we, uh, I mentioned the NBA finals came to a conclusion, uh, ended with the, the Nuggets winning in fairly predictable fashion. I think if you had looked at, uh, how we kind of felt coming into, um, this matchup, the, the Nuggets won 4-1, the Heat were nipping at their heels in a number of games, including this one. It's very easy to imagine this final game having gone a different way, uh, if a couple of well, frankly, Jimmy Butler decisions uh, go a couple different ways. Uh, and this may be a good uh, – we can kind of tee up some of this with a question from from the audience. Uh, uh, where do you guys land on Butler? An absolutely incredible, almost mythic performance in the early rounds. 
but a less impressive final showing. My own read is that it turns out carrying a team is tiring as hell, and eventually the gas runs out. But I'm curious to hear what y'all think. I think Butler is a... There's a lot to talk about the Nuggets, but I think Butler, given the rise of the heat and the run they had, is maybe... Explains a lot about how this season or this series played out. Yeah, you know, I think... It's a bit of a shame for Denver in some ways that Butler becomes the most compelling story of the finals because I think it made it easy to underrate how good Denver is in some ways. That Because in a lot of ways what you want, Butler is sort of the underdog story that a lot of people would want, right? Like in those early rounds, a player who finds a gear that not many players have and is able to turn in a Jordan-like performance in the early rounds and get that team past people that it did not seem uh, like they had any business getting past. And then somewhere in the process, I think really that, that ankle injury early in the Knicks series changes what he's capable of doing for the remainder of the series. Like he, Like what he was doing looked different after that game. He still had great moments, great games, but what we saw prior to that went away entirely. It, it, he was a much less uh, dynamic player, much less aggressive, uh, way more passive and letting letting other guys sort of carry, run the offense uh, on a lot of plays. And they were able to do that, right? But the, the, the story of this Heat team is not role players, but undrafted, like uh, uh, begotten players that like no one else wanted stepping up and that's a combination of players being given a chance and incredible coaching and understanding yeah. and and players meeting the moment and the Lakers had this a little bit uh you know on 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 their run uh, to at least make it to the second round where as well as as well LeBron played probably just okay relatively speaking other having some like highlight moments and Anthony Davis was more or less incredible um, um from start to finish despite having some off days but they had these role players that were just like boom it was so-and-so's game and they scored 25 points and that was the difference and allowed them to get past the Warriors. The Heat had that every single night. It's like Gabe Vincent and like all these other, uh, and like uh, they had no Tyler Hero, but they had these other players that just showed up and did remarkable things and they were able to make up for Butler's, you know, you know, whether it's injury, whether it's being exhausted, whether it's probably a combination of those two. Eventually, that is that is a function of structure and process but it's also luck. And they ran into a brick fucking wall. Like quite literally. They ran into a man who was constructed like a wall. And 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 also what surrounds not only is a wall, but it is a player who is about as unselfish as they come when it comes to a, watching a superstar. Um, like superstars by nature are selfish because they're extremely good and they should try and do like most things themselves because they are capable of it. And something about you know, Jokic is, he is just not that type of player. And like when the heat ran into that, it's like, you know, they, there wasn't a whole lot they can do. Well, I think Jokic, so I think some of it with Jokic is unselfish is one way to put it, put it, but I think there's also a dynamic where the entire, their entire game seems to work because he is as good at passing as he is at shooting. It's actually rare that you have a player who has like that sense, the, the game sense and the ability to read the like flow of a play and anticipate it the way Jokic can, who is also a lights out shooter. 
And so he becomes this like impossible problem to solve because he's going to pull defenders toward him. But also he's so big that they can they can try to cover him. But will they be able to effectively the sheer number of plays you see where he's just standing there unmoving in the paint (laughs) and he just sort of reaches up, plucks the ball off the board and then lobs it back in to make the basket. He's got two guys in his face. It doesn't matter because, you know, up in the thin air. Uh, from his <laughs> elbows, elbows up, his 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 arms are unguarded, and he is just able to, with no other shooting motion, just kind of like, like flip a ball in there, you know, with with no with no with no jump, with no shoulder shoulder movement. It is with just the, like with the ugliest throw motion possible. Straight off you go, well, that's that's not going in, and then every time it does, <laughs> but he can do that like by choice, but then just as equally, he will like the, he has this one pass that you, you, you see again and again. And it's not, it's not, I, I don't think it's his most impressive pass, but to me, it always sort of takes my breath away. He will do the thing where he's starting to back a guy up, right? He's putting his back and his ass against a guy and just sort of mm-hmm. like shoving him back toward the basket. And so you think he's just going to body that guy in and then he's going to turn around and make a shot. And then almost like, like, Almost thoughtlessly, it looks like he just lets the ball roll out of his hands into another nugget player as he runs past and the pass is done. It's it's like a it's like a pickpocket in reverse. It's just this like complete it's it's a it's a disguised handoff in a lot of ways, right? And so suddenly what you were convinced was a play where he is going to like batter his way to the net has turned into a play where the ball is in motion heading to an open like open space on the floor and nobody's got it. Like no, like nobody was set up to defend this shot, and he can like this is this is kind of how he he operates, and I think where the where Butler comes back into this is they needed him to pose that threat of at any moment he's going to say get on my back, like I am going to I'm going to carry us because when he when he poses a genuine threat of being able to do that, the defense has to cover him like he's going to do that. That floor gets a lot smaller the minute they realize, oh, Jimmy's just going to hang out there in the corner. And if he is left open, they might try a corner three from him. But he is not going to drive to the net, probably. He's and turning even into a if role he does, player. He can't make the shot. Right. Like there were large stretches in that final game was not especially pretty. Like the Nuggets didn't play well. The Heats didn't play well. There's a reason that it was reasonably close until the final minutes of the game when Butler makes like two back-to-back poor decisions, a pass that gets stolen because he kind of gets trapped and there's no one for him to throw to. And then a deeply contested three that he should not have taken. He should have just gone to the hoop and tried to get fouled. But uh, regardless, like you're right, like you, you when Butler just turns into an average player and and even if it's he's not actually, you know, <laughs> NBA jam on fire, which he did briefly in that fourth quarter where he hits those back-to-back threes after being ice cold for huge, I think he had at eight points up until that moment in the game and then hits back to back threes that immediately put them down too. And that's the stuff that Butler had done over and over for longer stretches of time. And it seemed like he was just willing it out of existence. Like, like a Jason Voorhees, like the heat are bad. Like they're not going to win this series, but they're, they're going to make you go home and win it at the heat, like at the heat arena uh, and make it hurt a little bit more. Um, there just wasn't anything left in the tank and whatever combination of factors lead, lead, lead the Butler to that point. Ultimately, it just means that those other play, other teams, like, you know, other players who are undrafted or are just role players, so much pressure is put on them 
in a way that the team just can't compete against, especially against the Nuggets team. Like you said, that the pat, I mean, I, re- I call it unselfish because there are just so many times that it feels like Jokic could go in and score and ch- or get fouled and chooses to pass it because it's better for the play. Like well, there I are think a lot of players in plays- Jokic's position know they have to, and right. he doesn't. Like Jamal Murray is a very, very good player, and on his night, he is a he's an amazing player. Aaron Gordon emerged as a great player over there. So it's like it's also one of those deals where I think in a lot of cases you're just because of like the way the team is constructed. There is a star who does have the sense of if I don't get this done, no one will. I think kind of what's scary about the Nuggets is I didn't feel like there was a moment in this playoffs where they left him holding the bag. You know what I mean? Like in general, I kind like he, he had great games, but in general, it kind of felt like. There were always people that he could distribute the ball to, mm-hmm. and that would not be a wasted possession. Right. Well, it, the, the, it always ran through him, but it didn't. When you say that, it doesn't mean that he's the one shooting. Right. Like he is just yeah. a facilitator. Like he he remains this this force and this presence, like this obelisk in the in the middle of the floor that is then able to just fire lasers to other players. And what's so interesting about? Do you have something to say? I just wanted to say, like, just to, like, tie up the loose end with Butler. Yeah. I think Butler did show, like, he is a great player. In terms of playoffs, he's yeah. an all-time playoff great. Yes. Like, like I don't the, think... The, the opposite I, of a James Harden. <laughs> I don't think even the... I don't think the Jordan comparison is, like, that far off the mark when you're talking about what he brings in those crunch playoff situations. Like, it is a level of, I have got this, put it in my hands that is very rare in the NBA and that he's good enough that that's actually good that he's doing that. Right. There's a lot of guys who maybe do get in that position of like, I guess I got to do this myself and then they can't. (laughs) You are just wasting (laughs) possessions, but, but, but Jimmy can actually do it, but it did feel a bit like in the bubble where that was a similar, very different team, but a similar situation where we made it to the mountain but we're too tired to get to the summit. Right. And it's just too much wear and tear. I, I kind of wonder how does he come back from the wear and tear of mm-hmm. this, of this particular playoffs run. It does kind of feel like we have seen now twice what Jimmy Butler can do by putting a team on his back. That is not going to win them a championship, especially with a team like Denver out there. Who's always uh, going to be waiting, right? Like this team yeah. is, you know, it's it's too early to call it a, a dynasty, but they are going to be the favorites next year, assuming uh, Murray and Jokic remain healthy. That is going to be the team to beat. There isn't really anybody in, like, the Warriors are going through a huge transition point. Like, so much of their team might change between this season and the next. Like, the Lakers are just barely hanging on. You've got LeBron doing retirement threats um, and rumors that, like... uh Oh, what's his face? Who's the dipshit? Um, uh, flat Earth, anti-vaxxer guy. Why oh, am I Kyrie. blanking? Kyrie, like saying that he wants to play with him, whether it's to come to Dallas or go to. It's just the De- Denver has a already a clear path to just being in those finals next year. And if Miami somehow struggled their way up that mountain again, they've done it twice in the last couple of seasons, so it is not inconceivable. I just don't. You can't imagine a world in which they're going to win unless they find. They need someone else to carry the load with Butler and Tyler Hero is a good player, but that's not enough. You need one. The thing you were missing was like 
a big guy. They don't really have like an immovable object. And it's does it? It kind of feels like there's a lot of teams that maybe, maybe it is. Maybe there's a contention here that GMs are wrestling with that I don't fully see. But it seems like a lot of teams go all in on we're not going to run a team with a big man. Yeah, and. That can look really good for a long time, but it turns out at the very at the at the top, you know, mm-hmm. if if you're up against a team with a good to great large man, you start <laughs> to see what huge problem that is yeah. uh, to to deal with. And it is, you know, it, 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 I think it's it's most evident with um, like rebounds and second chances. Right. Mm-hmm. Like where this is it is so key just to be able to turn those like what would be failed possessions into second opportunities, into scores, uh, drawing fouls because you were just so imposing that people are eventually uh, getting in foul trouble trying to just physically handle you. Right. I, the, I mean, the Nuggets only won by five. Like it's it, if the Heat played just a tiny bit better, if they had a couple of what you're talking about, those second chance rebounds that go their way that aren't grabbed. By someone like Jokic, they well, win this game. You, I, I think it's just it is a shame. Look, we all love the Miami run. Um, I do think it is a shame that Miami's run came at the cost of the team that would have given the Nuggets the most difficulty uh, in the finals. Would have been all timer, and that is the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> uh, I mean, we all saw just that collapse in the fourth quarter in the play-in game just really robbed us of a, a great what if. We saw we saw what the Bulls did to the Nuggets. <laughs> They ain't afraid of the Nuggets. That's true. That, that last true. meeting, they ran them off the floor. <laughs> they won by like 25 points or something like that. Belong got halfway through the third quarter and was like, pulling boys, get out. <laughs> no stopping. The, the Bulls are running. Don't get, don't get hurt out there. We got to save for the next game. Uh, that's true. I mean, because there has been this, I, I've seen this, this, this take floating around uh, about like, well, how impressive is Denver's win how dominant can Denver's win really be if uh they they went up against you know the eighth seeded heat and even though the 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 heat beat the Celtics and beat the Bucks and beat the Knicks I don't think the Knicks are as relevant in this conversation but would you would it have been a more interesting series with the Celtics or Milwaukee probably probably I think those are better teams than the heat the heat just found ways to win and like that can happen in sports it's something I love about sports it's harder to do in basketball or baseball than football, where like so many things are a coin flip. But I think that really, like I, the, the Nuggets lost four games in their postseason run. They lost one game at home. Like they lost, they beat LeBron, Anthony Davis, Steph Curry. Like yes, those teams are compromised, just like a lot of these teams are compromised going to the postseason. And there's winning, and then there's dominant winning, and that's what they that's what they did over and over again in their postseason run. And I, I don't know. I just think that there, people are well, trying to... they didn't to... beat Steph. <laughs> they didn't have to beat Steph uh, because uh, that was that was taken care of elsewhere. Right. Um, but I, I think it's funny. It's it's weird. I think in some ways... Who did they play in the first round? The Timberwolves? Is that they, who yeah, they played? That, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. Uh, and nobody remembers that because nobody took the Timberwolves seriously for good reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Not because they're such a terrible team, but like it was just so clear that this was not going to be a competitive series. This well, that was, was the whole classic. Morant stuff was going on still in that, right? Like it was just a weird. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but so the. 
so the the thing with the the nuggets like so with with a, a way a series like this ends up i think at the highest level i think one of the things that really strikes me about basketball is that blowouts are rare they might happen once in a series but it's actually pretty hard to completely bury a team yeah uh you know repeatedly in a, in a series it's it's exhausting uh it can be a very swingy game Sometimes maybe the refs, it does feel like they might be uh, just engineering things a little bit so that it doesn't get too boring. But in general, I, I think that there were a lot of games where the score was close, but the game was not. Yeah. Like to me, like the Nuggets felt like a team that could very comfortably sit on a six, eight point lead for two, three quarters. And the game was never further away than that, really. But it also never felt close. It never, you know, you, you would sit there and you'd be like, that six-point lead will not go away. Well, the Heat were and, up 10 at one point in yeah. this final game. They were, for a long time, playing better, especially in the, the first half. And that 10-point lead lasted for a certain amount of time. And then it was just, boom, in an instant, 10 points vanished. And they had, the Heat had to fight so hard to acquire that 10-point lead, and the Nuggets were just capable. And, like, the Heat, at their best, were able to do exactly that, right? Like, they were how many times, like, especially against, like, the Celtics, were they, oh, they're down 12. Like, I guess this game is over. And then just, like, <laughs> clawing their way back uh, right towards the end, and they'd be in the thick of it within a within a score or two. And um, I think you're right. I think that is blowouts betray the reality of basketball or most sports in general which is that they're incre- they're almost always incredibly close and i think we also we love the idea of the champion having in some way overcome and been the underdog at some point i think championships like the cavs championship against the warriors who yeah. were the better team but they steal it and yeah. they get they were down 3-1 yeah what a championship and like that is great they were the inferior team, but they won it, and that's cool. But that probably that's not what we should expect to happen. That's that's nice when it happens. Things like Toronto, uh, you know, beating mm-hmm. uh, beating the Warriors required a horrible luck and a series of misfortunes to hit the Warriors all at once at the end of that year, and then like and then the Raptors are able to to get it done and and seize this opportunity. But these these moments are really rare. I think. You know, the the Nuggets are a team that were just like built to steadily, like in every phase of the game, be a little bit better and a little bit harder to handle. And, you know, I think the, that's that's kind of that was kind of the arc of their their entire playoff run. I think you got a real taste of it in the Phoenix series where you had Phoenix would, was playing over their head. Uh, you know, tons of times mm-hmm. it took everything from Phoenix. They all had to be like maximally on their game to keep it close yeah. and to steal a couple wins. But eat, like even with Phoenix having those games, where you're sitting sitting there being like, "This doesn't seem sustainable." They were still <laughs> close games, and that's when you. Kind Why of is knew, Kevin is, Durant playing forty five minutes? That yeah. doesn't seem right. Yeah. Uh you know, the one thing we want to touch on, which is just really unique to the to the Nuggets uh, and, and this run is like Nikola Jokic is just a quintessentially unique player. I just want to read a couple of these quotes that have come out from 
the celebration and uh, kind of thing, everything surrounding the finals. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was uh, he was asked if he's looking forward to the celebratory parade. Uh, he looks over at the PR handlers that are at like you know sort of the Q like the the con- press conference desk like that you always see after uh, most sports events, and he asks the handler when is the parade. It's this Thursday. Then Jokic responds with, "No, I need to go home." Um, he says uh, he told someone that he hates being in the states and just wants to go home. He said on Sundays I have my horse racing. Uh, um, uh, there's this, there's this one tweet. Nikola Jokic is worried about making it back home in time to see his horse race because of the parade. Puts pressure on Josh, who I assume is like, uh, oh, the, the chairman of the Nuggets. Oh, he says. The job is done. We can go home now, Jokic said when asked how he feels to win the NBA championship MVP. I'm going to ask Josh, Nuggets chairman, to give me the plane, Jokic said while on the NBA TV panel postgame. I'll put him under the pressure. I don't feel bad at all. Um, there is, and so this is uh, one person pointed out that uh, not a question but a comment. Jokic won the NBA title. He won also an MVP. Then promptly said, fuck capitalism, go home. And this is another person writes in, which is probably a good a good tee up, which is Nikola Jokic, Jokic is maybe the most unconventional superstar in American team sports in the 21st century. He's amazing and truly hates it. What happens to a sport when its best player doesn't like to play it? He does. I don't know what lives in, in Jokic's heart, uh, Rob, but he does strike me as someone that has unbelievable talents, exercises them, but begrudgingly so. And that is, I can't tell how much of that is actual, just like, is it character? Is it demeanor? It seems truer than it is not. And it is, it is kind of, and but also how much of that is, I think there's so much in what you read on him that is, I'm doing this in America. This isn't my home. I'd prefer to be doing all of this in Serbia. Yeah. And if I was doing it there, I would be a happier person as a result. But I'm forced to spend so much of my my time, he has a daughter, right? At least one kid. She was up there on the uh, the podium um, when he was accepting the MVP. In some ways, I find it like refreshingly honest, especially as we have this influx of international talent that's coming to the NBA, which is unique. I guess MLS, like putting MLS aside, but like if we're thinking like hockey, I guess baseball has a lot of it. But like, it's it, I don't I think I think this is unique to the experience of international players coming to play in the NBA living in a place they don't consider their home and the tensions that exist within that. Yeah, I think uh, I, I, I agree with all of that. I think there's something really insightful there, which is the United States loves, loves to have an idea of itself where everyone who comes here is just thanking their lucky stars that they got to America and they got to make it in America. And that is a very flattering self image for the country, but for a lot of people, it is not true. That's not to say there, there, there are a lot of people who do have that experience of America, but there are also a lot of people who there are opportunities and there are, there's like earning potential and, and, and security that is possible. It's a in job. The United States. What happens when you're the most talented person at doing a job and you look at it as a job and not the fulfillment of a dream. <laughs> it's like kind well, of and, wild. The, and that maybe it would, it, you would, if all things considered, you would have enjoyed doing that job more at home, yeah. but you just couldn't, that it would have meant sacrificing too much of the money that was on the table. And so you have to be here now and, and doing this. And I think, it's very 
it's very unexpected to encounter someone like this in American sporting life who is very clearly, yep, that's that's my job, but I don't want to be here any longer than I have to be. I'm here to <laughs> I'm here to bank that cash and now I'm going to get out of here. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I am not so sure that I would say <clears throat> I'm not sure I get the vibe that he doesn't like playing basketball. I think he, he clear I think he has too much evident like satisfaction in dominating on the court right i don't think he particularly enjoys what comes with being an nba star yeah and because uh, it's just a different sort of stardom nba players probably have some of the highest celebrity profiles of anyone it's it's a sport where you know you are not buried under like layers of equipment mm-hmm you know, you are not represented by a logo. It's it's you. It's your face. It's your body out there. People people can see it and they can read sort of everything. You know, they think they can read everything you were doing and thinking. And yeah, I think for, like the the vibe I get from him is he likes playing basketball. Maybe he likes the money he makes doing it, but it, he's he's not there. He's not sitting there being like, oh man, and I I hope I can leverage this into becoming a media personality. When, <laughs> no, when's my ESPN contract? He doesn't Where, want a podcast. podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is the most, of like any major superstar I have seen in recent memory, if you told me, if you told me this turns into a, di- like, uh, a dynasty over the next five years, and that I don't know when his contract is up, I don't know the, the status of what, uh, uh, of all that, but that if he, I don't know, appears in two more finals, wins one more, and he just comes up to the podium at the end and goes, I'm going home. I don't want to do this. And, you know, he plays on the Olympic team. He still plays international basketball. But, like, he was just to walk away from the NBA because he'd made hundreds of millions of dollars and can coast on that internationally and be closer to home and his kids. Nothing about that would shock me. Um, if, right. if it was the kind of superstar that just said, Actually, like enough is enough and I don't need to do this until like literally the wheels are coming off any Tom Brady, LeBron James fashion. Like there are other like people I think people are mostly not like dunking on the way he talks about his horses. I think it is like there is a funny inherently funny quality to it. But I do think it's like very endearing to hear someone say that there are priorities in their life that are not just this. I don't blame Jamal Murray who comes back from an ACL tear that in decades previous is the kind of thing that ends your career or at least like completely limits your ability to, to play the game at the level you did before. And that he's sobbing as like the final seconds, you know, run out and he realizes he's come back from this horrible injury. And then also has won this championship and was crucial in their victory. That's fine. Like I, I, there are so many kids, especially if you grow up in America that like you look at those famous photos of like Michael Jordan, right. Or LeBron James, clutching the the trophies and that becomes seated as like that that is what I want out of life is to experience that moment. I'm not trying to rob Murray of it, but I think it is also very cool. And I don't know how much like, Jokic is going to connect with the kids. You know what I mean? Like he also doesn't strike me as a superstar because he's uninterested and because of his personality, I don't know that the kids are going to be showing up with Jokic jerseys outside mm. of uh, Denver. I, I want. I, I want to live in that world, Rob. I want to live in that world, but I don't know that that's what I'm going to see in the in the heist. Like the way like Steph Curry has influenced an entire generation of like up and coming basketball players that we're going to be experiencing for the next decade plus. Um, so I, mean, I don't I know if Jokic has the things. things. 
Okay. Uh, maybe three things. Okay. One, I, I, I'm not sure he will connect with the kids. I believe the kids may connect with him <laughs> because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of archetypes of NBA player where you're like, that person has such an incredible, like Jokic is huge, but it's not necessarily like when, when you watch uh, like John Morant having just a career game, right? Mm-hmm. You're watching that and you're being like, yeah, you can either do that or you can't. That's not learned. You know, it's like God given mm-hmm. talent and ability. And it's just coming from this, this other place. I believe a lot of people would look at a dude like Jokic and be like, wow, he just like has mastered a lot of these like really simple, straightforward. I'm going to plant myself here and just fire this at the basket. And it goes in. If you can do that, you can be an NBA star because it counts for two no matter what. It counts for two if you are if you are posterizing through the air, and it counts for two if you were just planted there and just like lopping it in. And so I think there's there's a bit of it is a type of excellence that is maybe more relatable than Steph Curry's preternatural three point shot, right? Mm. Uh, a little more relatable than than Jaws like sheer sheer athleticism. I think the the other funny thing though when I look at someone like Jokic is, I think we are so used to the try hard grindy culture of American sports where you know just you gotta put in the work and put in the effort and you gotta you know start you know you gotta you gotta live for this sport and if you don't if you don't live for it you're not gonna achieve you're not gonna be everything you can be. And Jokic has this vibe of, well, it turns out I'm really good at this. This just this just comes to me. Mm-hmm. These shots just make sense to me. I just have this touch. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I live for it in the same way. And I'm sorry for y'all. I don't appear to have to work for it in the same it way. It appears I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hearing I'm built different. Um, and uh, and I mean, better. And better. And there, yeah, I mean, there is something. I think, I think everyone inside of themselves, like, has some thing that they can do that comes naturally to them that is a mysterious like that is mysterious to others like it's always it's always so obvious when you uh watch you know someone like is really good at playing i don't know a musical instrument right or art like neither of those things make any sense to me um and like the one time i get to experience that is like i remember in high school i was writing everybody's or editing and like polishing everybody's like cover letters like for their schools because writing just makes sense to me i can look at a paragraph and like i need half of this gone and like okay i can help you tighten that up and make it sound better in a couple of minutes and i'll send it back to people and they go i don't i don't understand how you look at that and then you arrived at that a couple minutes later and that's like work and also just i don't know man like i just showed up like this um that's just how my brain looks at things and to see that from a, a superstar is the is the is the part that I think doesn't cleanly line up because we talk like you said we talk so much about hard work achieving your dream and it's like but what if just throw basketball good pay get paid lots of money <laughs> and like that can be cool too and I can be I can be happy for Nikola Jokic's horses also getting the attention that they that they deserve yeah I. Uh... I, I I dig it. I dig it enormously. I suspect that uh, yeah, people are people are going to connect with him, and I do think you know. We, and he's going to hate live- it. He's going to hate it. Like there, because I don't like the question is like as the way he presents himself, the way he seems to authentically feel about his role in 
superstardom in the NBA and basketball as a sport. Um, as people cling to that, like, what does he do? Is he is he able to lean into it and find? Well, I think he's already leaning into it. Okay. The sheer number of times there's a little bit of a smirk where like he is aware of like the character he cuts in the NBA. I think that is I think that is absolutely part of it too. Is that he knows that his brand of like uh, Serbian not giving a shit <laughs> and like bluntness just tickles the hell out of people because like so many people around the sport are are wordy. And just want to just want to talk hoops and 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 give those you know cut those promos, and his whole his whole shtick is is kind of like I'm not going to give you that, and I a hundred percent think he, he he is kind of he almost plays up the degree to which he is not like a lot of his peers. I wish um, I could I wish I could find I, I'd seen it in a different article, but there was it was something directly to your point um, that was. He made a very he made a statement like in his usual demeanor, like, which is kind of hard to tell. Is he joke? Is he saying something like straight faced? And at the end, he had to be like, OK, I was you were supposed to laugh like that was the joke. And so I think like you're right, like he is like he is aware of that image leaning into it to some degree. And yet I think part of the reason there's such an attraction to it is because there are like bits and characters that you play and you role play as part of like being a, a celebrity or just a, a public facing, but there's an authenticity even to that, that I think people find deeply charming in like an increasingly inauthentic society yeah. that is hard. Like, I hope that stays. Um, it's, he doesn't strike me as the type that that's going to break. And all of a sudden it's going to, it's going to be like fundamentally different. But um, even if that does, at least what's, what's really charming about right now is like having somebody like that, at the center of the basketball universe is, you know, he doesn't seem like he's like controlling his image in the way that, you know, LeBron and Korean, like I get why all those dudes do that. I mean, like there is great reason to like try and center yourself in a world of chaos. That is that, that level of celebrity, but I don't know. Well, in some ways they set him up for it, right? Because so many of these other characters in the NBA are sort of carefully crafted public images. And he feels so, unguarded mm-hmm. in in a way so so just like i here i am take or leave me and that is really I- exciting for folks and if russell wilson is on is, one side nikola yes. Jokic is on the exact other side go look up russell wilson's it was the sandwich commercial do you know what i'm talking so about it. yeah th- <laughs> it was the, that set the stage for his, the the serial killer video <laughs> where he's just narrating at the camera yeah it's it's bad it just set the stage for what this year was going to be like but i think i think the other part of it is you know, so much of the media complex around basketball is we do analyze these people as characters and who wants it more, who's who's doing what they should be doing, who is who has that killer instinct, who's taking the game seriously. And the way a lot of this stuff works into it is you sort of see results and you project moral value on them. Right. Like the, the we get, get a bit of this with the Celtics, which I think is true when you say the Celtics don't lock lock in, for instance, that the, the, the Celtics take their opponents too lightly uh, too often. And that's demonstrably true. But it also becomes very easy to say, like, the you know, this this reflects like deep underlying things about the players, which is maybe less supportable and less true. What's kind of cool about Jokic is he's impervious to that because he's so goddamn good. If he weren't this good, I think you would you would hear people being like, I don't know, I'm just not sure he seems like he wants it. And here we are all forced to reckon with with the you know picture of a player who 
doesn't necessarily seem like he wants it or doesn't want it, but just goes and gets it, regardless <laughs> of what we think, you know, is supposed to animate a star. Much like Stars. he just can stand up and grab something off a shelf and none of us can. He can just move the basketball that way and can and... Like in the finals where the 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 uh, basket got bent and he just like looked around and was like, I'm going to go up there and straighten that basket. Out. And then they were <laughs> like, missed, no, we need to. Did, need that to ha- did that happen while I was in L.A.? I must I missed I missed like two games. I think you missed it by a few. So, yeah. So uh, Bam Adebayo uh, hung off the basket and bent the rim. And it was out of it was sort of no longer it was no longer level. And everyone's looking around and Jokic just looks at it, looks at everyone. <laughs> and is like, I'm just going to go fix it. And so he went up there and just bent the rim back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they still had people come out and make sure it was all level and, and sort of tweak it. But his initial instinct was, no, I can get this. I can get this back to back to true. And then we can just keep this going. Uh, who cares? God. But, yeah, I, I just feel like there, there's sort of an imperviousness to a lot of narratives that, that comes with his with his type of game, because, you know, a lot of times we want greatness to come in not necessarily someone exactly like jimmy butler but this idea of this person just wants it they put yeah. in the hours they they they, they, they got really that dog in them this. there's no dogs in Jokic, right <laughs> like no, doesn't like, need there's them. horses there's horses but he loves yeah. his horses well and, and like a horse just this like majestic strong big <laughs> creature that just like naturally dominates at this one thing and he doesn't yeah he doesn't need to have that dog in him because he can just do all this. Mm-hmm. And I think that gives him a different perspective on the game in some ways and his place in it. And it's uh, it's bracing to see. It is a beautiful thing. I've come around on it. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we will come back, uh, talk a little bit about the uh, PGA uh, live merger uh, that happened uh, since the last uh, sports podcast. Uh, do a little bit update on the Bears and take a couple of your uh, questions. Uh, folks who are some folks are going to listen to some ads. Wait, do we have ads yet? I guess they're not listening to ads yet. They, they might, might. Have listen to ads in the future, right? They might listen to ads now. I don't know. It's true. We're Sometimes paying to have ads. We're paying to have. Sorry, ads, there's yeah. a there's a back. Sorry, there's a back end of this. Why are you paying for ads? Uh, it is because of like certain podcast hosting things, uh, like programmatic ads. That is a service some hosts provide, not others. When we so. do the next After Dark, a huge chunk is us explaining, learning about podcast hosting and the conversations we've had since since Remap launched. But yes, there, if, if you would like to uh, support us uh, over at remapradio.com, um, you can pay $5 a month uh, in order to get those ads to disappear um, or pay $10 a month to get access to things like us talking about the bear um, at the uh, foundation tier. So uh, we'll be back in just a moment. All right, we're back. Uh, maybe before we get the to, to the serious stuff, uh, Rob, um, I, I just so there are the the last sort of training camps are happening before the the NFL ed- enters kind of its quietest season of the year, which is a lot of players get to go on. There's things like van, uh, mandatory mini camps, veteran min, min, mandatory mini camps, and then everyone goes on vacation, comes after training camp, in, I think late July. But uh, 
you know, interviews are happening. The Bears are a team that are expected to be at least marginally better this year, given everything that's going on with the team. And I thought it was at least worth noting because this is kind of stuff that makes me just like rub my head in frustration. I'm going to read a, a little bit from this piece from uh, Windy City Gridiron um, in which uh, uh, defensive lineman Justin Jones, who was on the team last year and is also on the team this year, was asked about the Packers rivalry, especially in the context of Aaron Rodgers now having left and is over with the New York Jets. Uh, Jones says, quote, I wish he played uh, one more year with Green Bay, honestly. We went up there and we played a pretty good game, but they got away from us at the end, obviously, and they won. But their fans are really shitty, so I wanted to go back up there, and I wanted to play them, and I wanted to beat them, and I wanted to be there so he could see it. Uh, I'm ready to take over. It's a good time to be a Bears fan. And then someone followed up asking a pretty natural question. Which ways are they shitty? (laughs) Quote, just the way they're freaking obnoxious. Just yelling and all that other stuff about things that don't even matter, Jones said. We're not even running a play. You guys are talking about boo, oh yeah, this game hasn't even started. What are you even talking about here? Half of them don't even know football. It's so weird to me. But I'm ready to go back out there and play. And I want to go out there. And I want to beat the hell out of them on their field. And I want to hear it. I want to hear the boos. That's what I look forward to. Um, in some ways, delightful. In other ways, the team won three games last year. <laughs> yeah, I think the I think the uh, time to humble Rodgers at home was when he played there. Yeah. In many years, he played there. Sorry, mm-hmm. didn't happen. Yep. Um, uh, and oh, they got away from us. Yeah, we almost had them. I'm sure you did, champ. <laughs> yes. Classic footballism. You know, we were really good in the third quarter until the part where we lost it in the fourth. Um, so I know that's the thing you say when you beat them at Lambeau Field and make uh, Jordan Love uh, look embarrassing, but not necessarily the uh, the thing that you say. But this is what happens in the off season, right? There's nothing to hang on except one clip out of training camp and and what players are, are saying to keep themselves motivated. But uh, in the actual wider world of sports, uh, one of the things that happened uh, in between our last recording was we didn't really talked about golf uh, very much. I play golf uh, fairly regularly, but do not uh, spend a ton of time watching it other than really like the Masters. But it has been hard to not pay attention to what has been going on um, with the PGA and live, which stands for what? Do you know what that actually stands for it? Uh, so 54 because they play three rounds live is the roman numeral for 54 (gasps) and so they cut out the fourth round so 54 holes i see i see i see that was their that was their differentiating factor there were the two differentiating factors was they were going to run like stable slates of stars at these tournaments Mm -hmm. and then the tournaments were going to have a little less filler no cut just three rounds uh well nobody watched that but the entire premise of Live was the uh, Saudi Arabia using their Saudi uh, investment fund, which overlaps quite a bit with, you know, our world of video games in which essentially there are an enormous amount of money in the in the many billions being invested in different cultural investments. Um, you know, Embracer, which is going through, well, I'll, I don't know if we'll talk about it on the podcast, but they're going through a thing. Like it's taken a bunch of money. A lot of companies have taken money. Uh, from the Saudi government explicitly as they've gone about, they claim it's like purely trying to diversify their investments. So it's not just all in oil. And that may be true to some degree, but broadly it seems about trying to buy acceptance culturally in other parts of the world, specifically like in a place like America. And part one of the reasons, one of the ways they went about that was uh, in 
the PGA in golf, it is not a league like the NFL where players are all under explicit playing contracts, where they are tied to the league. They play there because that's where the money is. But in, in theory, if you were to introduce a competing and compelling league, you could drag a bunch of those players over. And they did that with a bunch of really high-profile players in the golf world, um, offering them, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know I, like from, from memory, some of them were being offered, whether as lump sums or over the course of years, like approaching half a billion dollars. I believe, uh, I'd have to look at the Tiger Woods number, but it was it was like in in that in that range for Tiger Woods who cannot who can barely play golf but is is seen as like a a notable public figure is a reason people show up to watch I watched the Masters this year to watch Tiger Woods be bad at golf because he is I, he is inseparable from like a Michael Jordan-esque figure from the last 20 years of me watching sort of mainstream sports. Well, and the sport has struggled to mint new stars as yes, well. Yes, post-Tiger post, uh, post like, Tiger Woods being, post, being... And post the the Woods-Mickelson rivalry, who was yeah. for a number of years there, his only credible rival right. in, in terms of uh, quality. And then and, I think surpassed him as he got hurt, as as Woods got hurt, but... It is that is not to say they don't have they don't have stars, but they have not had anyone capture. The they have stars for people who like golf, but not necessarily stars that transcend the sport in the way that well, Woods and, and Mickelson sometimes. Do. And the thing that made like one of the things that made live golf so interesting was that two of their like biggest stars sort of came out here and basically said, I hate the PGA. Yeah, I hate pro golf. Greg Norman was sort of the front man for live golf and uh, real like there's a body of work around Greg Norman. Like I liked him as a kid. The more I learn about him as a person, the less I like him and the better I feel about some of his uh, disappointments at places like the Masters, for instance. But this was a major star. His little iconic uh, like shark logo is one of the like most mm-hmm. popular pe- like uh, clothing lines in the golf world. And he seemed almost gleeful about the possibility that Live Golf would burn down the PGA. Phil Mickelson was basically sounding the same note. And, you know, he gave this uh, this remarkable interview, basically, where people asked him about Saudi Arabia's human rights record and the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And this is Mickelson, right? Yeah. I I, I have I have the quote in front. Yes, it is. It is. It is why, and like I think this gets to exactly what you're pointing out, which is a very important tension, which is that how much of this is about um, wanting competition, and how much of this is about just sticking like a knife in 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 the, in the PGA. So anyway, so he was uh, he was asked by ESPN about the human rights record of Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> and uh, Mickelson says they're scary motherfuckers to get involved with. Uh, they killed Washington Post reporter and U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi, and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. Which, he eventually put out some sort of apology spin on Twitter about that. I'm not even worth going to look that up because it's not worth it. Because that, that is Mickelson speaking as plainly and honestly as you'll get about what this has been about for a lot of the power brokers involved. But it is it is extremely difficult to read that quote and like not have chills run down your spine about how 
like plain sighted he is looking about getting into to bed with these folks and 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 the reasons for it. Well, and you look at a statement like that, and the funny thing is, like, he got in trouble because he told the truth. Yeah. That is a lot of folks doing business Mm -hmm. with the, you know, Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund make that exact same calculation. And they decide that, you know, those people over there are going to get executed no matter what. Enemies of the royal family will find bad things happening to them and their loved ones no matter what. And since I can't change that, and if this money is on the table, I might as well take the money off the table. But with Mickelson, there is also that added element of there is some real personal beef with, on the one hand, all this stuff is happening over in Saudi Arabia around like the royal family. And on the other hand, in my world, the things I can actually affect, the PGA has been a thorn in my side. And I want to take it to them. And it, it, like the, that's you know the, why the other- that's the one thing that I don't I've I, I have not seen super illustrated in the reporting and I, again I'm not super up and up on the history of Gulf. Do you have any sense? I like, don't. What- so this is the part I don't fully get either because at the top of the professional golf world, these guys make ridiculous money. Right. You don't even have to be a great golfer to make ridiculous. You just got to show up. <laughs> yeah, like guys who are just merely like really really good on the tour were like made massive cash through through the through the tour. And so I don't fully see what the what the beef was. Like ultimately I think there was an element of, you know, earnings potential that obviously he feels was was kind of denied him. Uh but I don't fully understand what the beef with a lot of the longtime PGA tour players was there. Um but I do but I do think it was it was kind it was kind of striking that in his head, in some way, his personal experience with the PGA carried a lot of weight on the other side of the scales from all the Saudi regime's various misdeeds. So, okay, so I, I did just Google, <laughs> why does Mickelson hate the PGA? And there's a little, uh, so you know, maybe this doesn't speak to all of it, but in this uh, this article on Golf Digest, um, there's a quote from... Uh, the piece and Mickelson says, uh, it's not public knowledge all that goes on, Mickelson said, but the players don't have access to their own media. If the tour wanted to end any threat from the Saudis or anywhere else, they could just hand back the media rights to players. They would rather throw on $25 million here and $40 million there than give back the roughly $20 billion in digital assets they control or give them any access to the 50 plus million they make every year on their own media channels. There are many issues, but that is one of the biggest, he continued. For me personally, it's not enough that they are sitting on hundreds of millions of digital moments. They all have access to my shots, access I do not have. They also charge companies to use shots that I hit. And when I did the quote, the match, there have been five of them, the tour forced me to pay them $1 million each every time for my own media rights. That type of greed is, to me, beyond obnoxious. The PGA Tour declined to comment on Mickelson's comments on Wednesday. However, the tour has previously decided that its business model is consistent with other professional sports leagues that rely on media rights to maximize revenue. In a November 21st, 2021 memo to players, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan, who is recently after brokering this deal with Liv, has had some, quote, health issues, which is hard to not look at as a graceful exit from something in which he is going to be beaten to hell publicly by, by players. Anyway, Monahan said 85% of the tour's consolidated revenue is tournament-related, either from sponsors or domestic or international media. In the memo, Monahan noted that 55% of the tour's 2021 revenue will be directed back to players. So it seems like this is – I cannot speak – I do not know the history of 
media like media rights control in other leagues where golf stands um, in, in other leagues. But it sounds like this is at the end of the day about money um, on, on the face of it. Maybe some of these do seem like legitimate grievances or annoyances. It's hard to get too mad about it when I know how much like the purses that, you know what I mean? It's like you had to pay a couple million for a couple of shots you could use on Twitter, but like you took home 35. Um, but, but it does seem about, it seems about control, right? It seems ultimately about control. And yes, you might be giving up control by signing a contract with live, but you made the decision to sign with them to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And in theory, control more of the rights over how you're presented um, and how you control that image. The thing that happened was that nobody watched it. No, it turned out that these players, as big as they are in golf as a sport now, none of them has the clout to turn it individually or even collectively as something people want to watch. It turns out people just turn on ESPN or the golf channel and they want to watch golf. Like, it's the same it's the same pitch sort of that you know the XFL and other alternative sports leagues have tried it's like do people love the sport that much that they'll just watch another version of it uh and the answer consistently has been kind of no and well, this is and golf is a small like golf is not as big as the NFL or the NBA and so attempting that in an even like more concentrated uh sector of interest seems to have been part of the part of the part of the issue here Golf's also got a weird feature where it has four Super Bowls, and it does, the PGA doesn't own any of them. Right, they don't the own the Masters. Run independently right. of the PGA. Right, right. which is why and Mickelson so was able to play. Why <clears throat> these live players were, they cannot be on the PGA Tour. They're sort of if you love golf and want to have it on every Sunday or whatever you know equivalent, they're not on those. But the Masters, and it was for a while, Mickelson was actually threatening to win the Masters. And, like, it was one of the only reasons I was watching from a dramatic tension standpoint. It was like, hmm, I'm not really exactly rooting for Mickelson, but it would be fascinating culturally if he funny. won, given that he cannot, he, like, he wins the the tournament, the, like, Super Bowl of Super Bowls for golf, and cannot be on the, the rest of the tour. He didn't ultimately win, but. So the 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 weird thing about this is, uh, you know, longtime listeners of the, the the podcast like know that I read a lot of uh, Matt Stoller's uh, commentary on like various issues. Right, he, I didn't read his piece, but he put out basically saying that like this merger is not going to happen, right? Yeah, and it, it's a pretty, you know, he like obviously he's going to be making his case, and therefore he's going to be presenting things that support his case, but. In general, he seems pretty convinced, and there are a lot of other people, including people who are generally skeptical of antitrust policy, who are generally like, let business do business, don't bother bother like doing antitrust stuff. Even those folks are looking at this and saying, this is a bit of an odd one. Because, like, for one thing, you know, in uh, there's an athletic piece you shared here where um, this deal came out of nowhere. You know, the PGA, this was a scorched earth battle between these between these like leagues they were suing the each other they were they were about like in the next couple of years as this went on the, the the bet that the pga was making was that we will just outlast you um and we we will like the the fact that we have a superior product and all these players most of the players stayed we, we'll just outlast you and also in court the do, do, do the saudi government really 
want to have those emails and conversations read into the public record. And like that was sort of the tension that was building in in the background. And they also had um, like they like PGA, the, the PGA had encouraged its own players, I guess, to go out there and just really amplify the moral dimension of this. Mm-hmm. Make the case that to do business with live golf, that live golf itself was sort of a deal with the devil and the PGA for all its flaws was not tainted by like Saudi blood money. It's American. (laughs) For whatever that is worth. But they had, so they had really like wrapped themselves in the flag and sort of waved the bloody shirt Mm -hmm. uh, in the face of live golf. And then to turn around and pretty much blindside everybody with this. Okay. It's fine. Now war's over. Including their players. Merging. Right. Like they, 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 they left. Notable players like Tiger Woods, others that had stuck by the PGA and made this a question not of money, but of of ethics, of morals, of uh, and then suddenly, oh, by the way, uh, like this is all pretty complicated. Um, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> like that is they just left them out to dry and like the deal is made and then there is a private players meeting with that Jay Monahan who sort of runs the the PGA side of it in which he basically just took a bunch of arrows but the the long and short of it was this made the most financial sense for the PGA and I, I have read like you know analysis of of golf as or the PGA as sort of an institution where it's like all like the the bills on all of this was adding up it wasn't you know could they actually outlast the Saudis on this like who was who was winning at the end of this if they kept going down this road but the moment that you make it about not money but like the ethical questions of our time and like what like the decisions that we personally make in terms of like the like you've you've put it into a different stratosphere where i like i, I haven't watched the netflix documentary the the i forget what it's what it's called their, their golf version of drive to survive yes i heard the yeah. first season was just okay um, uh, but the second season was filming when all this news broke. And so that second season is supposed to be rolling out sometime later this year. And we'll have real time reactions from a bunch of the players that is different from the more curated, you know, statements to the press, Twitter, Twitter and things like that. Um, but it seems fucked. It really does seem like the PGA made the calculation that this actually the same way that like these, these players did, um, they decided to. Well, I don't want to use the word defect, but that's certainly the way the PGA project like they wanted people to inter- interpret it as uh, that actually we need the money and actually the money wins out overall. And that's really the at the end of the day, like I, I are the Saudis getting what they want out of this. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the end game is. Like, I don't know what the, the analysis well, in- is. But in terms of like making making it more culturally acceptable that like these giant infusions of foreign money can come in and ultimately like become distinct parts of what are quote, like called like quote unquote American culture. I mean, that seems to be becoming more and more normalized, whether that's a good or a bad thing is like a separate question than sort of like where the, the trend is happening um, in, yeah, in various I, sports leagues. I am very curious to see if, you know, when you when you have antitrust people saying there's no way this deal just sails, there's no way it can just sail through. Well, because, because they made like the PGA was a monopoly, but yes. it's not as though there couldn't be competition. Live then presupposes like or, or is the existence of competition, and so then 
those two entities merging to create a monopoly feels weird on its face. <laughs> right. And again, especially because all of this happened under the cover of darkness. They didn't go bankrupt. It's not as no. though they said, hey, we're winding down the season. We're not doing this anymore. Um, it was it was clearly financially motivated in a way that feels very cloak and dagger that you would hope, you know, for all the, you know, kind of poking fun at some of the arguments being made about a Activision Blizzard and, and, and Microsoft. Like this seems like the, you know, a, like absolutely the kind of shit that you should be raking these people through the coals to justify yeah. why this should happen. Because if memory serves, I like. A lot of major American sports leagues have carve outs in the law to allow them to operate like cartels like they like there are carve outs in the law that exempt uh, the NFL and Major League Baseball from a lot of typical antitrust laws so that mm-hmm. they can run the leagues the the way they operate. I am not sure such a carve out exists for the PGA. The other thing that I do think in the wake of all this, because there's such clear bad faith here, it does make me think. The thing that the PGA and Liv have sort of just where golf is at in general is this weird place of ultimately, yeah, it's valuable to be on the PGA Tour. But ultimately, these players are not obliged to be anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like if the majors are not owned by any one league. And, you know, this is a bit like a long time ago in F1 history, for instance. Like the teams were kind of like independent operations and it did mean they like it was like herding cats but it also meant that when it came time for them to effectively like threaten to walk away from formula one and create their own racing series that threat was credible because their position was hey they're coming to watch our cars race we own the cars we have the drivers under contract f1 racing is going to happen where we are not where y'all say an f1 grand prix is happening mm-hmm. and in the wake of all this you're going to have a lot of pissed off players who you know, if you saw some sort of like another actor show up with investment money and a little bit of like, you know, agreement among the players, it would not be that hard to say, like, we could just set up good tournaments that people would watch without, you know, especially if you have some of the big name stars, because this is the weird thing is people will still tune in to watch Tiger and Phil Mickelson, even if they're way past their prime. Right. And so if you did create like we're going to do effectively like. Elements of the senior tour, elements of live golf, <laughs> and then elements of the PGA. Like, and we're just and we're open for business. Who wants to fund this? Right. I think like it. It, it it's not hard to imagine that it, something like that could take off, uh, especially if the PGA's money is messed up right now because of this war that they are effectively trying to. Again, get out of as quickly as humanly possible in a way that seems profoundly weird. It seems absent the PGA just bucking up and turning it into a contract league in which they are explicitly playing players yeah. to participate as opposed to promises of, you know, pots and, and things like that. Uh, that the door, like all that Liv did was prove you could like they didn't do a good job of it. Um, they just wielded around a bunch of cash and then I think ultimately like, had to pay networks to air their tournaments because nobody wanted like nobody. And it was not an it was like, I'm sure there was We didn't even get into the Trump of all this, by the way, who was also a backer <laughs> yeah, of live. Yes, and yes, they, they yes, did yes. something in his Jersey uh, correct as well. Yeah, it didn't. And I think the other thing is it kind of showed. Remember, we didn't talk about this that much, but there was that effort 
to create like a super league in Europe where you pull right. all the best teams out of their markets effectively and create a, a super league where another teams, uh, you know, have to worry about relegation and they just kind of only play each other and they just farm money. Yeah, man, I remember Ted Lasso season three, Rob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then Rebecca gave that speech and, and, and killed it. So I think the weird thing about live golf is it kind of proved, well, that model sure as shit is not going to work in golf yeah. because when they did sign a bunch of players, it did move the needle. It's not like people were like, oh, damn, like, look at this stacked lineup. I need to watch this <laughs> tournament. Like you said, that is not how most people consume golf. And I'm not sure. And I am not sure people really want the I just want to watch nothing but the best players compete. Everyone loves it when someone makes the cut and then goes on a run from right. like, you know, they're a mid table player. And then suddenly, like the sun just shines down upon them on a weekend. People love that in golf. Nobody wants a tournament where it's only the players, you know, and only them. And they're going to play three rounds and we'll see how it all turns out. And chances are we know it's going to turn out because at any one point in golf, there's like a half dozen players who are at the top of the table and it's going to be one of them. <laughs> uh, if anyone else has uh, more insight into this, I, I think this is probably something. We'll be we'll be keeping an eye on, especially with that Netflix documentary comes comes around later this year. So please uh please write in to uh questions at remapradio.com. Um well with the head with the but you can put in the header, you know, the the subject sports for now. But um, you know, we'll we'll see how replay uh, sits with us as we go forward. But let's answer a couple of your questions before we get out of here. Uh this comes from Stuart in Perth. With the Tour de France coming up and the myriad of doping slash PED scandals inevitably get caught up when talking about it, do you ever think we might get a sporting competition that not only allows performing enhancing substances, but actively encourages it? Personally, I would hate a competition like that, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't curious. P.S. I hate Kirk Cousins again. Uh, fair. The, the Vikings are in a weird spot. We'll probably talk a little bit more about that when we do maybe a, a preview of the of the upcoming uh, season uh, sometime in August as we approach the preseason. But Rob, what do you what do you make of a of a sports league that says, "Man, just fuck them up, fam. Like put that shit in your body and and, and see what happens." Yeah, I think um, you know I would be I would be very excited to see like the transhumanist Olympics or something <laughs> where it's like what what drugs and biomechanical augmentations can we give people to see how this goes. I, I genuinely so I, I will say this. The advances in uh like performance enhancing substances, one of the side effects of all this is it becomes increasingly hard to draw clear distinctions, at least from my understanding of how this mm-hmm. stuff is unfolding, between like you know what what's generally called doping and then really effective physical therapy. It's like increasingly hard to tell where that line is drawn because a lot of where the science has gone is basically like a lot of enhanced recovery methods and a lot of high tech ways to uh, help players like, you know, competitors recover faster and stronger. I'm going to Sweden. Well, what's in Sweden? What's happening? And it, I don't think it's, but you know what I mean? Like you'll hear of like players going international to get specialized uh, recovery uh, treatments like what's like I think I'll, it's true it's like that the line is very blurred on like what what is like advancements in typical sports medicine and what is a fuzzy line that like rules take time to catch up to th- like the blurring that is occurring and it feels like that is also happening at a faster pace than it ever has uh, before um, yeah and like uh, you know if you think about there is a lot of um 
you know, we attach a lot of moral, moral values to this. And part of it is that because there's a lack of clarity over who's who's taking enhancing substances and who isn't, uh, this is, you know, the, the competition is compromised. It's it's unfair uh, that, that people are doing this. But one of the reasons that a lot of these uh, substances are also banned is because when this was coming, when this was really like coming into the sport, there was a lot of concern that is this stuff healthy for athletes to be taking? Do you want like it, you don't want a league where to stay relevant and stay competitive? Every player is forced to go on a really like a really demanding medical regime whose long-term effects are poorly understood or maybe they are understood and they're just not good. Like we are not in the days where we're just like shooting people up with anabolic steroids anymore. And so like we, we have ended up in a place where it's not as clear cut what in some, with some courses of treatment, what harm are we protecting people from? On the other hand, these treatments are expensive and to an extent, it is it's a bit the thing where star athletes and like rich teams could probably afford the most advanced, uh, you know, physical therapy regimes possible, whereas, you know, other teams would not be able to compete because they simply can't afford uh, the, the kind of infrastructure that enables something like that. So I think it's for, to, to, to in my view, it seems like it's gotten way more complicated than like 30 years ago when this d- discourse was unfolding. Because there it was like, should athletes be forced to take a lot of harmful substances and and, and put their bodies through this kind of stress just to stay relevant in a sport? Because like some people are going to do it and they're going to win if you don't sort of match pace with them. The science has moved a little bit. And while I'm sure there's still, you know, courses of treatment that are out there that you wouldn't want people undergoing, there's some of it where I'm like, oh, so that just sounds like. If if this is a standard course of treatment for people recovering from injury, right, and it's safe, why is it bad when it's being used to, like, build muscle faster or, you know, come back mm-hmm. from the wear and tear of a season faster? Mm-hmm. And I don't have as clear-cut answers other than say, like, well, you know, it's kind of against the spirit of the rules. But the spirit of the rules always change, right? Like, that right. is – I mean, all, at the end of the day, what we want, what you want is – Sports are defined by rules, but those rules are ever-changing and fuzzy and moving with the culture and our understanding of, of medicine. And so, yeah, uh, look, if you want to bring back American Gladiators, uh, I'd, be, I'd be happy to watch it. Um, uh, I've, I've been – I watched like a little bit of – it was just on at a thing recently, like American Ninja Warrior was on. It all made me think of it was like, I really liked American Gladiators. Let's bring back that show. Um not sure if y'all touch on the recent transfer of Messi to Inter Miami, but in the international football world, it is huge news. For context, many abroad see the MLS uh, as a retirement home for aging stars looking to make quick bucks and people who were never good enough to play in Europe. Some MLS fans see this as the league getting the, quote, respect it deserves on an international level. I see this as reaffirming all the insecurities uh, of fans of the league, making special deals for an aging player who has hinted at wanting to come to Miami to enjoy life more. My question is, what are y'all's thoughts on the uh, MLS uh, when considering getting into soccer? Does the MLS hold any appeal? Does the idea of the arguably uh, greatest player in the world cause increased interest in watching the MLS? Uh, From the uh, Chicago perspective, I was reading an article about how 
tickets have spiked uh, for when um, Messi will come through Chicago where like tickets for otherwise, I think it's the Chicago fire, right? Or the, or the, is that the, the MLS team yeah. here? Um, you know, you can go for like 15 bucks and the tickets have base spiked when this is like a week ago uh, to like 260. And then if you want to sit close, you're looking at five grand. Uh, and so I don't think you can, it's very easy to look at all of this as, just a well-coaxed uh, financial play for all parties uh, involved. I believe that part of what was unique about his agreement was that he's getting a fine. He is getting shared financial stake with Apple. Um, yep. Apple, who for a long time was rumored to be buying uh, the rights to NFL Sunday ticket uh, that ended up going to YouTube. Um, Apple has really, they, you know, they carry some baseball games, so they've really invested in MLS. Um, they're like deeply financially invested in the future of MLS. And one of the unique things that they have as a result of that partnership is that they can offer unique things in that partnership. And one of those is that the, like a stake in like the broadcast rights um, to MLS to Messi, which is obviously for a company like Apple in which sports television are just extended media plays for their, their, their core um, consumer technology business. It's not hard to see, like, yeah, maybe would, would Messi not have done this until a little bit later in their career, but when offered something like this, it's like, ah, um, this is you. You pay attention to soccer slash football more than me. Like, what what are you hearing among either yourself or or folks who follow the sport a little more? I mean, I uh, I think he's of that tier. Like, in some ways, this feels like such an old school deal. Where this is this was historically like one of the bedrocks of the MLS. This letter sort of alludes to it is that MLS is where superstars who were past their superstardom phase in the European leagues came to play out their last days. Starting with Beckham, right? Like Beckham essentially starts this trend. And like, I think if you ask the average, they probably can't remember David Beckham's name anymore because he's kind of faded from. Uh, so the, 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 the popular consciousness, but they're like, my mom knew who David Beckham was mm-hmm. and that happened when he came. Now he was also dating one of the Spice Girls, right? Like, yeah. uh, Mary so one of the Spice Girls. Y- yes. 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 And um, but that was, that is an, an example of that. Yeah. The Bennett like Beckham. Yes. There was a, yeah. a whole movement in the, I don't know what, early 2000s when this, yeah, it was, this all, all it, was a, it was a cultural moment. Uh, yeah. So I, I think in some ways the, the funny thing about this is this is the type of deal that the MLS hasn't done for a while. And so it kind of dredges all that back up. It's just that Messi is so much bigger a star. He is so huge within the sport. And so I think there's kind of, there's it, to me, it, it kind of looks like there's a bit of a weird vibe in that people who really like the MLS and there's a lot of folks now who I'm friends with who love the MLS. They like uh, Adam Conover was telling me that like uh, L.A. Galaxy is like hands down one of the best sporting experiences that you can see. Just a great spectator experience. My I, my all uh, my friends in Seattle, it's the the Kraken, right? Are there? Uh, or is that their, that's their, their hockey team. team? But they just what are they? Uh, what's what is? The, I'll look it up. But like I I have friends that are in like would broadly describe themselves as like the Sounders. Um, great name. They like have season tickets. They go like they're going to all. I mean, like, and they say it's an inc- like an incredible experience. And they have been into it long before you know, like so, sort of like this broader, especially Apple pushed movement to uh, mainstream the support the 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 league more. But also part of it is like they will tell you the quality of competition has gotten a lot better, mm-hmm. and the quality of like 
a homegrown competition has improved that like um like in the United States men's soccer is now producing great players and great teams that it is no longer kind of the national embarrassment uh that it was com- when compared to the US the US women's team and so i think the weird thing is the the, the thing's going to rub people the wrong way here is that there's a bit of MLS doesn't need to do deals like this. Doesn't need Messi to come here legitimize the thing. Mm-hmm. Clearly, somebody feels it does. <laughs> Apple kind of feels maybe it does. Well, Apple, they, they one of their big pushes was a league wide pass um, that you could purchase through uh, Apple TV Plus, or I think you can purchase that stuff. Anyway, long story short, there was like a big a big push this season, and I had noticed like pe- people pointing out that well, it was it cost X amount. Like to get access to it, and then suddenly it cost half that amount, and then suddenly it cost half that amount. Plus, they were giving like a really generous free trial, and so you know, I'm sure deals like this don't happen overnight. But you can, you know, with Apple having a financial stake in this, and MLS obviously having a, a stake in wanting to broaden, you know, people watching it. Um, I guess I'm not shocked that you end up in a in a place like this and a a unique deal like this. Um, it's better than what Ronaldo did. <laughs> what did Ronaldo do? Explain. Took a fortune to go play. Uh, I think in Saudi Saudi Arabia, mm. like in a league that nobody watches. It's mm-hmm. like the like is going there basically to take a massive paycheck to give a league that has no natural reason for being some <laughs> credibility. Uh, final question, Cincinnati John here. Now that there is remap, does this mean I get to show you all the greatest chili? Parlous? Parlous in Cincinnati? Chili Parlous? Do you mean parlor? Parlous? Parlous is a word. It just... I think he meant chili parlor. Yeah, it's got to be parlor. Um, but please, uh, Cincinnati John, write in if we're wrong. Because parlous means full of danger or uncertainty. Well, it's a cr- I mean, it's this, a this, 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 this chili could be full of danger for all for all we know in Cincinnati. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, uh, Rob and I have talked about hopes and dreams uh, about where, where all this could go. Uh, it's, it's too early to speak about those things. But I have... Uh, Things have been said, things have been invoked in a dreamlike status of an opportunity to perhaps eat some Cincinnati chili um, if we are so we are so lucky to do so. And the only way something like that happens is with your support. In the meantime, you can follow Remap on Twitter at Remap Radio, on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Remap Radio. And I'm going to get this right on YouTube at youtube.com slash app. Remap Radio. The at symbol is unfortunately critical. If you do youtube.com slash Remap Radio, you will get jack and shit. But with the at, they are moving just like Discord and every other social media service is like just moving, pivoting the handles in a way that uh, is goofy. Um, This episode is presented ad-free if you're subscribed for at least $5 a month over at RemapRadio.com. Remap is, is wholly owned by us. We, we do not work for a big corporation anymore. We have to pay for insurance and podcast hosting. And eventually, in a few years, when I move up the queue, I'm going to be paying for uh, Chicago Bears season tickets. So, you know, if you want all those things to happen, and I want them to happen, you can directly support the future of Remap and perhaps some Cincinnati chili at the Chili Parlous, which is what I'm calling it now. Um, and ex- by extension, this podcast, by signing up today over at remapradio.com. You can follow me personally. 
uh, on Twitter at Patrick Klupik. You can sign up for my parenting and gaming Substack crossplay at patrickklupik.substack.com. Rob, where can the people follow you? At Rob Zachney on Twitter for the moment. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a good asterisk for 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 all this stuff. Uh, until uh, next time, uh, fuck capitalism and bear down. <laughs>